Let's join in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we explore uh, your word, we pray that you will direct our thoughts, uh, direct my words, direct our meditation together, that the things we read about and are encouraged to do might also be things that we don't just hear but also do, that we might prove faithful in every respect in hearing and doing, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we come to a new series on the book of Daniel this morning. Not the whole book, not chapters 1 to 12, but chapters 1 to 7. And beginning, of course, where you would normally begin in the first chapter. Now, this book of Daniel can be a great mystery to some, but it should be a great encouragement to all. And the reason for that is the context of the time of the events that took place, Daniel. The time in the history of God's people when the southern kingdom of Judah, because of their failure to repent from their idolatry, reaped an ugly harvest that the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah in particular, told them would be theirs if they did not take heed to the ways of the Lord. And that ugly harvest was exile to Babylon. So by the year 605 BC, that is six centuries before Christ, the deportation of God's people to Babylon had begun. Nebuchadnezzar was the king whom we'll meet again and again in the text. He was in the mood to take over as much of the Middle Eastern world as he could and Jerusalem was in his sights. And though it might have looked like to the people of God that God had lost control of the world and his people, This exile was part of God's plan, not just to punish Judah for their sin and rebellion, but also to bring about his perfect will. That's a key, by the way, to understanding the book of Daniel and the perspective that it gives to us on the sovereignty of God. How else can we understand the impact of this exile on the people of Judah, which effectively ended the whole nation as they had been known. Let me qualify that, because Israel still exists as a nation today, when it seemed likely that they would be wiped off from the face of the earth long ago. And so that by that very fact, we see the sovereignty of God, don't we? And so this book of Daniel occurs... In the midst of the exile, and the book provides us a 70-year slice of Daniel's life and an insight into life in the exile, taking us from his teenage years all the way, some say, to his 90s. And this first chapter records for us the stage on which this story is to be set, explaining for us how these young Jewish men ended up in a Babylonian court, 
living in a different culture, surrounded by a different worldview, surrounded by a different pattern of living, surrounded by different religious beliefs, far, far different from the one they had known as they grew up in Judah. There are many important lessons for us to learn through the book and in this text. Impossible in a passage so large and this rich to do justice to everything. So leaving aside uh, the gold mine of truth in verses 1 and 2 for the moment that show us how God was always in control of the exile and never once let go of his people, let's focus upon the situation that Daniel and his friends found themselves in under God's mighty hand. First, I want you to note the strategies employed to change the mindset of these young men in verses 1 to 7. We note in those verses how Daniel and his friends came to be employed in, uh, sorry, came to be in the Babylonian court. This much is explained there for you in the passage, how it was that the sons of the nobles of Jerusalem, even the sons of royal families, found themselves taken away and put in this totally different and foreign context. We're told exactly what happened, but we're told of a truth underlying it, and the truth reminds us that we must be aware of the stratagems of worldliness and the world's attempts to change us. In this passage, we're basically told that Nebuchadnezzar and his men tried to brainwash these young men from Jerusalem. And the king's attempts to indoctrinate these young men to remove their worldview and to put in their minds a totally different view. Nebuchadnezzar's plan for overthrowing Jerusalem didn't involve simple military might. Isn't it interesting that this is in the year 605? It will be 20 years before the fall of Jerusalem happens. And it's going to happen in three stages. But in this first attack on Jerusalem, he did not attempt to wipe out Jewish culture like, and make it like a blank slate, but first took the brilliant minds from their culture, took them away from their families and brought them to himself, robbing Israel of its best minds for a new generation, bringing into his service these young men in a view to attempt to make them think like Babylonians. Now, the king's plan has been used before and it's been used since. And there are some today who would like to use it again to impact young people of today in universities and in colleges and in high schools and now in primary schools and now in kindergartens with a completely different world view, just like Nebuchadnezzar attempted to do here. I want you to notice the strategy that Nebuchadnezzar had to take over the minds of these young men. First of all, the platform was to isolate them. They're isolated from Jerusalem. They're isolated from their families. They're soon isolated from the means of grace. They're isolated from weekly worship. They're isolated from the sacrificial system, from the reading and the hearing of the word of God, from the prophetic testimony, 
of the prophets of God. They're isolated. And isolated from the means of grace means his hope will be that they will be open to the thinking of the the Babylonians. Next stage, indoctrinated. They are taught the language and literature of Babylon. Now that might seem harmless enough. It might just seem that they're doing some courses in Babylonian literature, just learning the Babylonian language. But the goal there is to make them think like Babylonians. It's to make them Babylonians in their heads, in their minds. The third approach is to tempt them to compromise. He puts before them rich food and delicacies and great privileges in the court by giving them high living and comfort and position and status and reputation and importance near the king. He hopes to wean their desires away from relying upon God and his people to draw their desires to Babylon and all the privileges that that can involve, that they would love Babylon more than they love Judah and so love Babylon's gods more than their God. And then notice he attempts to bring confusion. He gives them new names. Now you can read many commentators here and they say, oh, this is perfectly harmless. They're just given new names because it would have been hard for Babylonians to pronounce their names. You know, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, really hard. Maybe not. They're being given new names so that day after day they will be called by these names. And these are names connected with the gods of Babylon. So they will forget who they are and begin to have a new identity. And so the fourfold plan for indoctrination, for brainwashing, is set in place by some brilliant mastermind in Nebuchadnezzar's court. What does this remind us? It reminds us that how we think determines how we live. How we think about God, how we think about ourselves, how we think about the world and about others determines how we live. Our outlook, our worldview matters. The battle for Christianity today continues to be a battle for the mind. And it's one of the great services that we have as Presbyterians to offer the whole of evangelical tradition. We love the scriptures, we preach the scriptures, we want the scriptures to transform people's minds in the way that God wants. It's interesting how being lured to another worldview is more subtle and successful though than someone attempting to force you into another worldview. And so we must always be on guard for the stratagems of the world in our own society and learn to do as Paul said and submit every thought captive to Christ wearing the helmet of salvation securely protecting our minds by soaking them often in the word of God. Second, learn from verses 8 to 16, the counter strategies employed to continue their mindset. We learn in verses 8 to 16 another truth. This time, Daniel's strategy for resistance. How would Daniel resist this battle for his mind? We learn here that Daniel and his friends 
were faithful and we learn the principle that we must consciously resolve to resist the world's attempts to take over our thinking. Daniel's strategy for resistance is a model for the servants of God also facing the pressures of the world. He does at least three things. First of all, we're told that Daniel resolved to be holy. Daniel decided, Daniel purposed, Daniel made up his mind not to be contaminated by the court of Babylon. We're told this in verse 8. Secondly, and this is an interesting combination, I want you to note that Daniel does not do this in an obnoxious way. Daniel does it with genuine humility and modesty. He cultivated a good relationship with his captors. He doesn't say, I'm just frankly not going to eat this food. He goes to the court official and he says, I humbly request that you permit me and my friends not to eat this food. It was a big test for anyone, let alone young men, of loyalty and faithfulness as to whether they would stay true to their convictions when no one was looking. Some might say that Daniel's refusal to eat was really just a minor problem. He should have just eaten it and said nothing. Or he should have just come halfway. He could have compromised just a little to avoid the conflict. But Daniel knew that obedience to God and being commended in his side is better than pleasing our fellow man and disregarding loyalties. Yes, even over little things like food. And the Lord honoured Daniel's humility and Daniel's humility, as we'll see through the whole book, speaks volumes about the reality and the genuineness of his profession. And in his humility, he offered a respectful request, as we've seen, that the Lord eventually caused that court official to honour. It's an important point. Because when we find ourselves pushed against by an antagonistic culture that does not like our message anymore, our tendency is to want to come out and fight, swinging, when it's actually the soft answer that can turn away wrath and create conversation. And why is that? Because ultimately our desire is not to see our enemies and the world that wants to convert us come to trouble, we want to see them come to Christ. And the soft answer of humility is so often the most striking arrow in the weapons of God's arsenal. Notice then that Daniel also not only resolved to be holy, but Daniel believed. He resolved to be holy, he was humble in his response but he believed, he trusted and he, expect, he expected that God would be faithful to him in his desire to be faithful to God. When his captor says, I can't do this because my head's on the line here, literally my head is on the line, I'm about to lose it, Daniel comes back with a plan. Just give me 10 days, I know that everything will be okay. Understand here that Daniel is not being presumptuous. Instead, he is sure that God in some way, perhaps not knowing at the time how that would work out, God would be desire to be faithful 
sorry, God would honour his desire to be faithful to him in a strange land. He may not have had any idea how God was going to do that, but he was confident and he was assured that God was able to do that and his promises would keep him in that. Do you have that kind of resolution? Do you have, do we have and share that kind of assurance when we face the many pressures of the world that God's got this? You know, it's funny how we Presbyterians who ought to have the highest view of God's sovereignty and of our lives sometimes have the least expectations that the Lord will do anything. We think, oh, well, we'll do our best, but I know there's not much hope that it's going to change. And yet we're supposed to have this incredible doctrine of God's sovereignty and his power so that when God does the least little thing, we go, oh, how surprising. We should expect it. We should expect that the Lord will honour his word. We should believe that his word has power. As we read in Isaiah 55 last week, it will accomplish the things for which he has sent it. We ought to have the highest expectations, not out of presumption, but out of confidence that the Lord's got this. And this comes out in the third point where we note how God honoured their resolution to keep that mindset. Verses 17 to 21. In these verses you'll see God honouring Daniel and his friends in their faithfulness. He elevated them to positions of influence. He put them in the place in he put them in a place in the culture where they will have strategic impact and influence on those who wanted him to conform to them. That reminds us that we must remember that God honours faithfulness. Daniel and his friends excelled above their peers. They not only looked as good, they not only performed as well, they excelled when put to the test. They were better in every way, ten times better, it says. Their test in this circumstance had long-term repercussions. Their desire to stand firm in this experience prepared them for further tests. And you know what's next, don't you? Daniel chapter 3 and later on in Daniel chapter 6, there's no doubt that these young men would not have been ready to lay down their lives in the fiery furnace and before the den of lions, huge tests, if they'd not begun with a smaller test. Was not our Lord's life the same? Did he not go from test to test to test in increasing intensity all the way to the cross? And if it's so in the life of Daniel and if it's so in the life of Jesus, should we not expect it would be so in the life of those who follow him? God is in the testing of our lives. That's the business. That's the circumstances he causes. The testing of our lives. Yes, these things are sent, as someone said to me the other day, to try us. But they're also sent to sanctify us. 
and to grow our faith and to confirm our trust. Think of the witness that Daniel and friends had upon their captors. We hear in the time of Jesus' birth that magi came from the east. Who were those magi? Where did they hear of the things that God had done? It's one of the questions I want to ask when I get to heaven. Is there a connection between the witness of Daniel and his friends and those who came looking for the Messiah? Daniel and his friends were faithful in the midst of trials and they believed that God was sovereign in those trials. Sinclair Ferguson says, all too frequently we take a different view of our trials and temptations. We view them as isolated nightmares. God sees them from a different perspective. They are important and connected punctuation marks in the biography of grace he is writing in our lives. I'll say that again, it's a good quote. They are important and connected punctuation marks in the biography of grace he is writing in our lives. Trials give formation, direction and character to our lives. They're all part of the tapestry that God is weaving in history. He uses them to build up our strength and prepare us to surmount greater obstacles and fiercer temptations. Well, the book of Daniel itself is a piece of resistance literature. It's a book written for the people of God living in a world which is opposed to them. And this book gives us a call to perseverance, to faithfulness and to honour. Its message, and particularly in this first chapter, is don't give up when it seems that the world continues to take offence about what you stand for. Don't give up. And that follows very nicely from what we've heard in Revelation 2 and 3, doesn't it? The seven letters to the seven churches. This call to faithfulness, loyalty and perseverance. This call not only to stand up, but to stand firm. Being ready to stand firm even though you are flooded with the thought form of the world that wants to encroach upon you even though it seems that the things you believe as a believer, as a follower of the one true God, are so far out of fashion and downright offensive to so many, stand firm. Stand firm in your thinking. Stand firm in your living. Stand firm in your spiritual and moral resolve. Stand firm on the gospel. So there's this call here perseverance into faithfulness and we'll note that right through the book as we go through the chapters but there's another lesson here and that's about giving God honour the Lord once said to Samuel I will honour those who honour me 1 Samuel 2.30 it's the verse that one of the American athletes gave to Eric Little just before his gold medal winning race, after he determined, I'm going to honour the Lord. Even if it means I don't run on the Lord's day, I'm going to honour the Lord. And the Lord was faithful to Eric Little, as he was to Daniel, and he will prove faithful also to you if you resolve to serve the Lord 
and only him and do not let the world squeeze you into its mould. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you face, even if it comes to the point of shedding your blood. Honouring him as Daniel did with courage and loyalty. And how is it in the face of growing intense opposition that we can do these things? How is it? It's because of the hope that God's people share in the midst of the worst of trials. Here we have Daniel and his friends in the centre of the most traumatic experience in the history of the people of God. That exile to Babylon, where it seemed that God's covenant promises to Abraham and to David had fallen through. And it was in that circumstance that we see God come through in this book showing us that the kingdoms of the world are his and he never lets his people go. How can we sing the song of the Lord in a strange land? Because we have a God who is sovereign. There is reason to hope, even in the midst of the severest of tragedies, For we learn that it's not your identity, not your situation, not your reputation, not your education that matters. These things might give you an advantage or a disadvantage, but the overwhelming thing that matters is that you are joined by grace through faith to the God who holds everything in his hands, whose plans cannot and will not be foiled and thwarted, and these plans centre around his son and those who belong to him. These things matter. Belonging to God matters. It's the most important because it lasts forever. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. And so this world and its system of godless thinking and attempts to force God's people into its mould will one day pass away as we have in the text before us in 1 John. Only Jesus gives hope. Look to him and trust him. Do it now if you've never done it before and if you've done it before, don't stop doing it. No matter the pressure that's placed upon you, no matter the cost, no matter the squeeze, it's a tough call. But Jesus must be Lord of all or else he's not Lord at all. Are you up for the challenge? Join me for the ride, standing with Daniel and his friends. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you call us to take a side, to take a stand Make a stand. We'll hear throughout this book so many instances in which Daniel and his friends were asked to compromise, but they drew a line in the sand and said, this far and no further, we cannot do anything that will not honour the Lord. And even in this small matter before us, 
of eating the king's food. We thank you that you gave them sufficient confidence that you would help them through. We acknowledge that we live in a world that wants us to water down our message or abandon it completely. Please enable us these things that we speak of, faithfulness and loyalty and perseverance, these are not small things by any means. Please help us to do those things well. And where we find ourselves tempted to compromise or perhaps giving way, please enable us to humbly respond to the world around us We cannot, we must not, and we will not. Thank you that being joined to Jesus is the best thing. Thank you that we heard from 1 Peter 1, that we're not to be conformed to this world, but we have a God who is holy and who has called us into his kingdom. So enable us in our walk, in our work, in our witness this week, to do these things well. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.